The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. This is war, 2019 style. This is Thursday, June 6th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through that PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Among the parts of the Mueller report that go mostly unnoticed, the part about the U.S. being attacked by Russia is the most alarming. That's saying something when you consider what else is in the Mueller report that most Americans, and tragically most of those in Congress, still have not read more than two months after its release. It didn't even seem to help when Robert Mueller himself stood before the cameras to say that we have been, and apparently still are, under attack by the heart of the former Soviet Union. Since a crucial part of what he said has been regrettably forgotten, it behooves us to say it again in quotes. Russian intelligence officers who are part of the Russian military launched a concerted attack on our political system, end quote. That never seemed to sink in or stick in the media or in the minds of the public, probably because it hasn't been repeated often enough and because a lot of our fellow citizens have just stopped listening and because that story has been distorted and obscured. It doesn't help that the president still refers to the investigation into that attack as a hoax and a witch hunt, and that he's not only failed to respond to Russia's attack, but has in fact hurt the U.S. response by closing the White House Office of Cybersecurity. It doesn't help that Congress has still not adequately responded to the attack that began nearly four years ago. But the U.S. military heard Mueller. In fact, it's been listening and responding since the first reports from U.S. intelligence. David Ignatius of the Washington Post reports that our military is now operating on the presumption that we are under constant attack from all of our foreign adversaries. With the U.S. Cyber Command on the front lines, our nation is now in a state of ongoing cyber warfare. While politics struggle to keep up in their usual clumsy, noisy way, American cyber soldiers are invading enemy networks and the parts of the Internet our enemies use to conduct their attacks. Quoting from Cyber Command's intense 2018 directive, we have learned we must stop attacks before they penetrate our cyber defenses or impair our military forces. Quoting a senior U.S. military officer at a recent cyberspace strategy conference, never let your adversary have a moment to hide or breathe. The goal, he said, is to inflict damage, or as he put it, imposing cost. Otherwise, he warned adversaries, until checked, will keep advancing. And this tough new U.S. military strategy has one other goal, to avoid inflicting the kind of damage that an actual physical military attack might achieve. The goal is deterrence, and apparently it works even in cyberspace. In the days immediately surrounding the 2018 midterm elections, U.S. Cyber Command was messing with Russia's cyber soldiers, and according to a couple of analysts, the risk to the U.S., quote, appears to have been reduced with no apparent blowback or immediate downsides. The good news, according to the Post-Ignatius, who's also a respected foreign affairs expert, is that the U.S. Cyber Command is responding to the Russian attack on our democracy, even if no one else is. The bad news, worries Ignatius, is that it may not be enough. The Russian attack is what the first section of the Mueller report is all about, and it was the first and last thing Mueller spoke about in his brief public statement last week, emphasizing the attack in his own Mueller way. Trump, meanwhile, continues to vacillate between saying Mueller has vindicated him and calling the investigation treasonous. Trump's silence about Mueller's TV statement only lasted about a day before the president tore into the special counsel 
calling Mueller totally conflicted. Trump claims Mueller loved Comey and hated Trump for firing him and was bitter about not being chosen as Comey's successor, but the president's also still steamed about a dispute he and Mueller had eight years ago over membership fees at Trump's Northern Virginia Golf Club. Trump has argued via Twitter that if he had committed a crime, Mueller would have charged him, which is about as opposite as you can get from what Mueller actually said. If we had confidence the president didn't commit a crime, said Mueller, we would have said that. Mueller went on to say it would have to be Congress, not his office, to pursue criminal charges. So Trump's claim Mueller would have charged him is not true, nor is it true that this proves Trump committed no crime. And for the record, although Mueller and Comey were friendly co-workers at the FBI and the Justice Department, those two men have never socialized even once. And Mueller never asked the Trump administration for a job replacing Comey at the FBI didn't happen. Mueller's been to the White House only once in this presidency to brief the new administration on the role of the FBI. Trump also claims Mueller found no obstruction. That's not true either. It's all in the Mueller report. Quote, Our investigation found multiple acts by the president capable of exerting undue influence over investigations. End quote. And the report says that includes influence over both the investigation into the Russian attack and the investigation into obstruction itself. In his fumbling self-exoneration, Trump accidentally admitted Russia helped him get elected. To quote his tweet precisely, he put in writing, I had nothing to do with Russia helping me to get elected. He later deleted that and swung back to his story, it's all a hoax, and denied he'd gotten any help from the Russians. In his usual look-over-there style, Trump accused Hillary Clinton of getting Russian help, telling reporters, Russia, if anything, I think, helped the other side. He was again unhinged from the reality of the Mueller report, which said just the opposite, that the Russians worked to hurt the Clinton campaign, not help it. The emails that were stolen by Russia were hers, not his, Her campaign's private communications were burgled by Russia, which then posted them on WikiLeaks. It was the Trump campaign, not Clinton's, that had eagerly accepted help from Russia. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon says he told the president his Mueller conflict claims were, quote, ridiculous, that not one of these conflicts is real. Former White House counsel Don McGahn says he also told Trump his conflict claims were not real. Instead of ridiculous, McGahn used the word silly. Two years ago this month, Trump told McGahn to tell Rod Rosenstein to tell Mueller that he was too conflicted to be the special counsel. McGahn intentionally never got around to that. He's gone now. So is Steve Bannon, who dared to use the word ridiculous. But no matter how phony or silly or ridiculous the claim, the more often that Trump and Fox News repeat these falsehoods, the more they are accepted by much of the public as true. Trump told nearly two dozen lies and falsehoods about the Russia probe in just one morning following the Mueller TV appearance, one of the whoppers that the Mueller investigation had cost $40 million. As of six months ago, Mueller had only run up a $12 million tab if you add in the separate Justice Department investigation into the Russian attack, that's another $13 million. That leaves us with a subtotal of $25 million, quite short of Trump's unattributed $40 million. And what Trump and Fox News failed to mention is how much money the Mueller investigation has brought in. 
Thanks to Mueller's prosecution of Trump's campaign manager, his deputy campaign manager, his personal lawyer, his first national security advisor, and two other campaign aides, the government had already seized nearly $46 million in assets, roughly $44 million from Manafort alone. Maybe that's where Trump got his $40 million. That's how much Mueller brought in, millions more than Mueller and the Justice Department had spent combined. The final figures aren't in, but the Mueller probe could achieve a highly unusual feat for a criminal investigation, turning a profit. The property seized from Manafort includes a luxury apartment in Trump Tower that continues to pay rent to the government while Manafort languishes in solitary confinement on Rikers Island. So Trump is wrong again when he says the Mueller probe was, quote, wasting $40 million. It wasn't $40 million. And whether it was wasted remains to be seen. There is visible light at the end of this dark tunnel, but there's still some dark tunnel ahead. The greatest darkness lies in the struggle between what we know, what we have learned in this investigation, and public opinion, which hasn't moved much. The latest CNN poll shows Trump's approval rating steady at 43%, despite the evidence already laid before us. Only a weak majority, 52%, disapprove of him. And that same poll finds that 54% of us are still against impeachment, which leads us to conclude that what we have learned in the investigation, what we know from it, hasn't connected with the public. Many Americans have tuned out, stopped paying attention to news altogether. An alarming number of people say they don't trust the news. Millions of Americans watch and trust the Fox News channel, which conceals as much as it misleads in its part-time coverage. And while the CNN poll shows the percentage of Democrats in favor of impeachment has surged by 7% in the past month to more than three out of four, the needle has not moved among independent voters. Independents do not approve of Trump. He gets a 38% approval from them in a recent NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. But independents also do not approve of impeachment, and independent voters will be crucial to any Democratic challenge to Trump in 2020. Republican voters, meanwhile, have not been swayed by the Mueller report or by Mueller's semi-cryptic statement on TV. The failure to budge on the Republican side is illustrated no more clearly than it was when these words were spoken by a Trump voter right after a town hall meeting with conservative Republican Michigan Congressman Justin Amash. Republican voter Kathy Garnett cast her ballot for both Amash and Trump and went to the town hall unhappy to hear that Amash had become the first and only Republican in Congress to call for Trump's impeachment. When she asked why, she learned things she had not heard before. Kathy later told NBC, I was surprised to hear there was anything negative in the Mueller report at all about President Trump. I hadn't heard that before, she said, adding, I mainly listen to conservative news. I hadn't heard anything negative about that report, and President Trump has been exonerated, said Michigan voter Kathy Garnett, just one of the millions in that 54% opposed to impeachment. The most pro-impeachment number we've seen is 47%, and that was last September. It's gone down since then. A surprising 4 out of 10 Democrats think the investigations of Trump are overreaching. 4 out of 10 Democrats think it's overreach. The impeachment momentum seemed to actually diminish as the clock and the talk wore on. The bad news for the impeachment movement is that we essentially have a hung jury. 
The NBC poll showed 48% of us opposed to impeachment hearings, 49% in favor of them, either now or after further congressional investigation. The polls also show, by the way, that two-thirds of all voters want Robert Mueller to testify for Congress. Two-thirds of all voters. In this corner, we have now former special counsel Robert Mueller, who says his report speaks for itself, and he'd rather not testify for Congress. Thank you. But the report does not speak for itself, and certainly not with any loud clarity, judging from the awareness level of that Michigan voter and millions like her. And although Mueller's report says a lot, it does not say whether Trump broke the law. It would have helped a lot if he'd said one way or the other. He still could. Even William Barr says he's mystified by this. I personally felt he could have reached a decision, Barr told CBS, adding that although Justice Department policy says Mueller could not indict a sitting president, quoting Barr, he could have reached a decision as to whether it was criminal activity. He sure could have. Mueller's written report has not, and for better or worse, cannot reach as many people as a Trump tweet or a Trump soundbite or the proclamations of William Barr and Fox News. Orally and in print, Mueller speaks in a kind of legalese that's so careful and conservative. Quoting one congressional Democrat, he speaks in ways that are open to interpretation, adding, sometimes he's like a Ouija board. Because Mueller's so keen on avoiding politics... He's actually invited political exploitation by remaining mostly silent. Now, all the Democrats have to do in Congress is figure out what to do about Robert Mueller. While two-thirds of all Americans and over half of all Republicans want Mueller questioned by Congress, Mueller would still rather not testify and has promised to be boring, adding nothing new in his testimony. That, of course, is up to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and a few of her top lawmakers. In spite of a stalemate, negotiations continue between the House and Mueller while Democrats debate whether to issue a subpoena and whether to risk their credibility in a court fight with Mueller if he challenges a subpoena, which really does not seem likely since he's Mueller. Democrats are also aware that if they do get Mueller to appear, it means Republican lawmakers would get equal time to ask their own questions of Mueller, unhelpful questions most likely. Republican lawmakers are eager to ask dark questions about surveillance, one of their deep state conspiracy favorites, maybe turn the hearing their way to bolster Trump's case. Likewise, if Mueller sticks to the report as he's pledged to do, the Republicans' dramatic questions will go nowhere. And Democrats worry that putting Mueller in the witness chair will make it appear that Mueller's on trial for something, which is counter to the impression they want to make. Democrats worry that grilling Mueller will make them appear to be overly aggressive. On the other hand, a subpoena may give Mueller an out he's looking for to say that he had no choice but to testify. Quoting Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler, we will have Mr. Mueller's testimony. Nadler says that even if Mueller has nothing new to add, it's important to put him on TV. Other Democrats, however, worry that Mueller's testimony might actually be boring, ending in a dead end and more disappointment. Even when it comes to calling Mueller to testify, there's a lot to consider. Whichever theories are more correct, many Democrats believe the only way to get out the findings of that written report is to put Robert Mueller on TV and the Internet. Quoting a law enforcement veteran on the House Judiciary Committee, it's important for people who are busy. They're trying to just make a living. They're not going to read the report. But, she says, I think it's important for them to hear, in Mueller's own words, 
his findings. Democrats also continue to debate among themselves about whether to launch an impeachment inquiry. In a 14-minute exchange with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, late-night host Jimmy Kimmel reminded her that Mueller had left action on Trump's crimes to Congress, telling her, we need you to get in there. Pelosi answered, we've been on that path for a while. When we do get to where we're going, we're going to be ready. But, countered Kimmel, it feels like we've been on that path for a really, really long while, like since the 1970s. But Pelosi stuck to her guns about being ready. She said Trump may be hoping to be exonerated once and for all by a Senate vote against impeachment. That's why she says the case has to be airtight before it gets to the Senate. We're going to be ready, swore Pelosi, promising to hold the president accountable through investigations in six different committees that may, she says, lead to impeachment. But Pelosi's go-slow approach is a tough sell, and that may not be its greatest shortcoming. Recent history tells us Pelosi may have the wrong strategy. There were Watergate hearings for well over a year before Nixon's impeachment hearings began. And during that 16 months of hearings, public opinion of Nixon fell, but only modestly. It wasn't until the impeachment hearings got the damning evidence that only an impeachment hearing can get that the public finally turned on Richard Nixon. 16 months of hearings barely moved the needle in the 70s. That might be the lesson here. One fateful event in the impeachment hearings moved the needle a lot. And it proved the needle can be moved even in the most extreme cases. There is a light at the end of this dark tunnel. Only 19% of Americans supported the impeachment of Nixon in early 1973. By the middle of the following year, support for impeachment had jumped by nearly 40% into the high 50s. While Pelosi wants to try to shift public opinion with hearings, recent history shows that it's the impeachment process that moves the public, especially those crucial independent voters. Even if Republicans never come around, independents can make the difference in terms of support for impeachment. And as the Washington Post Greg Sargent points out, more Indies already favor impeachment today than did in Nixon's day at this point. The difference is back then Congress led public opinion instead of following it. It feels as though the dam is about to burst on that, the dam that has so far held back a clearly inevitable impeachment process. Pelosi's stand against impeachment is now on shaky ground. Her troops are divided over several things, but whether to impeach is the biggest division of all. A growing number of them are eager to open the impeachment door, and Speaker Pelosi can only hold them back for so long. As Madam Speaker gazed out over a crowd of Democrats in her native California this week, she saw people holding signs that read, Impeach! She heard a man shout, Impeach! more than once. Although most of the Democratic 2020 presidential hopefuls towed the Pelosi line at first, many have now strayed. In fact, all of them have and have instead called for an impeachment inquiry. The crowd in California had given Pelosi a generous but mixed reception. When candidate Kamala Harris shouted, we need to begin impeachment hearings, the crowd cheered loudly. More than 60 House Democrats and Republican Justin Amash are now on the impeachment bandwagon that's headed straight for Pelosi. The momentum is growing, and that momentum is the light at the end of the tunnel. In the meantime, the House Judiciary Committee's found a way to pass the time while the White House continues to stonewall the investigation. 
a stubbornly uncooperative administration's refusing to allow any of its past or present members to testify using the shaky legal premise of executive privilege. On Tuesday, White House instructed former Trump advisor Hope Hicks and former Deputy White House Counsel Annie Donaldson to ignore their congressional subpoenas. Hicks was on Air Force One when the false response was crafted after news of the infamous Trump Tower meeting. Ms. Donaldson, assistant to Don McGahn, kept a detailed work diary. And since lawmakers don't yet have Robert Mueller and they don't yet have anyone from the Trump administration, starting with key witness and former White House counsel Don McGahn, they've decided to start hearings focused on the Mueller report. On Monday of this week, committee chairman Jerry Nadler announced a series of hearings related to the special counsel's findings. The hearings begin this coming Monday with a star witness from the Watergate era, John Dean. Dean was White House counsel for Richard Nixon, who did with his testimony more than any other individual take down that corrupt president. John Dean will be back in the witness chair Monday to give the lawmakers guidance on whether and when to impeach Donald Trump and to put all of this into historical perspective for the rest of us. And that will be the first hearing in a series of hearings to lay out the case for obstruction of justice by the current president. Quoting Nadler, in the coming weeks, other hearings will focus on other important aspects of the Mueller report. After Dean's testimony, it isn't clear who will or won't appear next before the committee. And that feels about as far as we can get from an impeachment inquiry. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff says he, too, will begin a series of meetings next week, beginning on Wednesday, again focused on the Mueller report and especially the counterintelligence investigation. The light at the end of this tunnel may emanate from dark skin. Democrats, from the candidates to the lawmakers to Nancy Pelosi, know they cannot win in 2020 without a healthy turnout by the nation's African-Americans. And African-Americans are, on average, very anti-Trump and very pro-impeachment. They hold much of the vote, and they want him punished and removed yesterday. In the first week of December 2017, Democrat Dwight Evans of Pennsylvania was the very first in Congress to introduce a resolution to impeach Donald Trump, December 2017. Evans is black and represents a mostly black district that bitterly remembers Trump's campaign words to their community, what the hell do you have to lose? Congressman Evans says he hears from his constituents one thing consistently. Why haven't you gotten rid of him yet? Evans says the questions also include, we sent you to Washington for one reason only, to get rid of the president. Why haven't you? A school bus driver in Evans' Philadelphia district says, I don't think he's mentally stable, do you? A barber along Philly's West Oak Lane says, they've got to get him out of the way before he destroys the country. Mr. Evans is not the only African-American lawmaker hearing this from his constituents, especially since the Mueller report came out. California's Maxine Waters, powerful head of the House Financial Services Committee, is today leading the congressional calls for impeachment, followed closely by Jerry Nadler of the Judiciary Committee. She, too, has been on the impeachment bandwagon since before the Mueller report. But since that report, three more black representatives have signed on. Benny Thompson of Mississippi, who chairs the Homeland Security Committee, Congressman Danny Davis, and Illinois' Bobby Rush. While only 48% of white voters want Trump impeached, 63% of Hispanic voters want that, and 87% of black voters, according to a Quinnipiac University poll. 
And as with so many things in our culture, African-Americans are leading the way on impeachment. And Nancy Pelosi would be wise to listen. It was the black vote that pushed Barack Obama to victory. It was the black vote that kept Clinton in office when he was impeached. It was the young black vote that helped the Democrats flip the House last November. How soon we forget. And since Democrats need the black vote to turn out in 2020, Nancy Pelosi is absolutely aware of this. With 63% of Hispanics favoring impeachment, they also represent a powerful voting force if Democrats can inspire them to turn out instead of breaking their spirits with inaction. Whether they've said so publicly or not, most of the lawmakers in Congress know that impeachment is inevitable. And a growing number want to know, why is the inevitable taking so long? But new poll numbers show Trump's doing badly with all voters, especially in the key battleground states for 2020. Disapproval in New Hampshire, 58 percent, 55 in Wisconsin, 54 in Michigan, 54 in Iowa, 51 in Arizona, 52 in Pennsylvania, 50 percent disapproval in Ohio and North Carolina and nearly that bad in Florida. These are the key battleground states for 2020, and Trump is doing very poorly in all of them. It's not yet blinding, but there is visible light at the end of this long, dark tunnel. In the immortal words of shock rock pioneer Alice Cooper, when everything screams, nothing screams. Our shock president is screaming more on Twitter, and because he's always screaming on Twitter, it's losing its impact. We almost can't hear his screaming anymore for all the screaming. Former U.S. Treasury Secretary Stephen Ratner wrote about this brilliantly this week in the New York Times. Ratner found that at real Donald Trump has hammered out 42,000 tweets in the past 10 years. Once he took office, he was tweeting an average of six times a day. His current average is 22 a day, a rate of nearly one an hour, most of them now going unnoticed. The pace picked up tremendously on the release of the Mueller report. Being good with numbers, former Treasury Secretary Ratner also analyzed the response rate to Trump's tweets. He got this response rate by dividing the number of likes Trump gets per tweet by the number of his followers. The response rate to Trump's tweets after Election Day was six-tenths of one percent. Today, despite the monumental rise in the number of his tweets, the response rate is now barely over one-tenth of a percent. He's now lost five of his six-tenths. He's lost his impact. He's lost his Twitter mojo. And the more he rants about the Mueller report, the less attention he's getting. By the numbers, the Mueller investigation is his number one topic on Twitter. But by Ratner's numbers, the most popular topic with his followers is fake news. The individual tweet that remains the most popular of his presidency is the altered pro-wrestling video in which Trump takes down a man whose head has been replaced by the CNN logo. Trump's followers love the wrestling gag, but they hate the news. Trump supporters may also hate the news that they're about to pay more for produce and cars and clothing and a whole lot of things. Much has happened since last Thursday when Trump announced he'd start slapping higher and higher tariffs on the stuff we buy from Mexico until Mexico stops the migrants marching through it to get to the U.S. 
The tariff hikes would start with 5% on June 10th, he said, and then go to 10% on July 1st if Mexico still hasn't solved this immigration problem, and then 5% a month afterward, stopping only when they got to 25% or when Mexico fixed Trump's immigration problem. Despite administration denials, Mexico would not pay these tariffs directly. You would. We all would. From the little guy to the big corporation, Mexico would pay in lost sales and lost jobs while U.S. citizens paid through higher prices, mainly. Mexico is our biggest trade partner. Americans will pay up to 25% more for things made or grown in Mexico, including American and Japanese cars and Japanese TV sets, phones, computers, and medical equipment. Even that first hike of 5% will force American businesses and consumers to collectively pay an extra $17 billion for Mexican goods. Trump is insisting that Mexico risks setting off economic crises in both countries if it doesn't completely stop migration to the U.S. through its borders. And drugs. Mexico must also completely stop the flow of drugs into the U.S. People and drugs. To make sure Mexico gets the job done, he's sending dozens of U.S. Homeland Security agents to the border that Mexico shares with Guatemala to stop the flow of hungry Guatemalans. Step aside, Americans coming through. It is an aggressive act against an ally and a message to the world that the U.S. cannot be trusted to stick to any existing negotiated agreement. The art of the deal, as it turns out, is to tear up the deal. And he's doing it with a 1977 law giving the president a power to punish our adversaries, not our allies. Likely another impeachable abuse of power. The only tool the great businessman ever uses is a hammer. His tactic of maximum pressure, as he calls it, did not work with North Korea. It has not worked in his trade war with China. And it won't likely work on Mexico beyond the superficial. And Trump's tariff attack endangers his own NAFTA replacement deal with Mexico and Canada, just as it was nearly ready to be signed. The head of the National Foreign Trade Council calls Trump's Mexico tariff plan a colossal blunder. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce calls it exactly the wrong move. The National Association of Manufacturers calls it a Molotov cocktail policy. Very unhappy about this, but more eager to trade than fight, Mexico sent a delegation to Washington and started taking a few steps to make the U.S. president not mad at them anymore, even though they're unclear about exactly what it is he wants. Also in Washington, Trump's own congressional Republicans are not happy. They're not happy he's likely squirreling that NAFTA replacement deal, and they're not happy about the effect the tariff attack will have on corporations and constituents. To them... This is just a new tax on Americans, and Republicans may have lost a lot of things in the Trump era, but they have not lost their disdain for taxes. The Koch Network sent the lawmakers a letter Tuesday calling Trump's tariff the largest tax hike in American history and declaring that it's, quote, time for Congress to do its job. When the Koch brothers speak, Republicans in Congress listen. And Trump's gone around them again, bypassing the branch of government whose job it is to control the money again. And while Trump was off to see the queen, while the cat was away, Republicans on the Hill plotted to stop Trump's tariff attack on Mexico. For those keeping count, this would be the second time this year Republicans in Congress have tried to stand up to Trump both times for circumventing them 
by abusing the executive power of an emergency declaration, arguably an impeachable abuse of power. If Congress were to vote to overturn Trump's border emergency declaration, that would not only stop his tariff plan, it would cut off the billions of dollars he's reappropriated to build his wall after Congress had denied him that money. After the Washington Post broke the news about this Republican plot, Trump got wind of it in Britain. He tweeted they'd be foolish to go against him and threatened to veto such a move, just as he had when he took billions from the military to build his wall. Congress failed to override Trump's veto the first time they challenged his emergency declaration. This time, the odds have shifted. Have they shifted enough? Maybe. While Trump was out of town, Republican senators stormed the White House, saying they had the votes to overturn his border emergency declaration and everything he's used it for, and that they have the votes to override his veto if he uses that power. That would be a serious political blow to Trump and a bigger blow to his fragile ego. Suddenly, it was a high-stakes game of chicken between the president and his usually loyal Republican lawmakers. We shall override, was the message from Republicans just saying no to Trump and declaring it their final answer. But that's in the Senate. It takes a two-thirds majority in both houses of Congress to override a presidential veto, and Republicans in the House are not so keen on defying Trump. If the override fails, you will pay more for tomatoes and avocados and rugs and beer and tequila and oil and farm equipment and auto parts and cars by an average 1500 bucks per vehicle. One of the first things that goes into assembling a modern car are the wire harnesses that gather the wires that run through the car. Mexico makes those. If anyone were serious about addressing immigration, they'd look at both supply and demand. We could reduce the number of immigrants fleeing poverty by spending more money in their home countries, easing the poverty and reducing the need to migrate to the land of opportunity. Instead, Trump has cut off aid to those supply-side countries, actually increasing the number of migrants headed our way. The presidents also failed to address the demand for illegals, failing to punish the employers who hire them. Fewer than a dozen U.S. employers hiring undocumented workers were prosecuted in the past year as migrants continue to flow here because they know there are employers like these who will hire them. Obama, even in his best year for this, only nailed 25 employers, more than twice as many as Trump, but still a ridiculously small number. This business-friendly administration, however, has focused far more keenly on the migrants looking to make a living than it has on those who bring them here with under-the-table jobs. Workers are being rounded up by the hundreds while most employers skate without penalty. Farmers in many places have lost a third of their workers, meanwhile, workers they need to get their crops to our tables. Trump's golf resorts and hotels have hired dozens of undocumented workers. Sometimes, according to the Washington Post, those undocumented workers were told to work extra hours without pay. It was an order they could not refuse, since the Trump Organization knew, at least in its gut, that these were undocumented workers, and it could threaten them with deportation if they didn't work those extra hours without pay. Trump's company says it's now checking for documentation before hiring, using the same system that's mandatory in some states. But it's still not mandatory at the national level, where a president still has some influence. Meanwhile, the migrants continue to be mistreated once they get caught this side of the border. 
That's what Homeland Security's Inspector General found after touring the migrant storage facility at El Paso, Texas. What he found there on May 8th was standing room-only conditions, with as many as 900 people in a building meant to hold 125. We observed detainees standing on toilets in the cells to gain breathing space, limiting access to the toilets. The Inspector General found, therefore, unsanitary conditions. They found 76 detainees in a cell meant for 12. One built for eight detainees held 41. Another built for 35 held 155 people. They were held there for weeks while more tents are being set up. The administration cannot keep up with the more than 144,000 migrants who entered our country just in the month of May. That's the highest monthly total in seven years. All the administration's focus on immigration isn't working. The DHS Inspector General recommended immediate steps to ease the overcrowding described as unhealthy and unsafe. Those steps would include more buildings for detainees and or more tents. And if you can imagine, it's even worse for the kids. We have learned this past week that many of the 2,000 unaccompanied migrant children are also being held in overcrowded conditions and for longer than the law allows. Some of the kids are under age 12. Many are still unaccounted for. Some are forced to stay in transport vans for up to 23 hours due to a lack of beds at the detention centers for kids. The process of getting them into shelters or homes cannot keep up. The Trump administration cannot keep up with the numbers, even if it can keep up with the cruelty. Yesterday, the Trump administration canceled English classes, recreational programs, and legal aid for the thousands of unaccompanied migrant children it keeps in storage. No, you may not speak English. No, you may not have a lawyer. And no, you may not go outside and play. House Democrats, meanwhile, are taking action on immigration Tuesday they passed a bill offering a path to citizenship for more than 2 million undocumented residents, mainly the Dreamers. Dreamers is the nickname given to those brought here as children in many cases decades ago. They were protected from deportation under Obama. Under Trump, they became fair game. The Democrats in Congress have voted to protect them by law this time instead of by an executive order that the next president can overturn. Every Democrat in the House, all 230 of them present, voted yes, as did seven Republicans. Every other Republican present voted no, saying the bill does nothing for border security. And the Senate won't even take it up. And even if the Senate did take it up, and even if the Senate were to pass it, which it wouldn't, Trump would veto it. So why did Democrats even bother? Two reasons. It sends a message that their party stands for fair immigration, ahead of the 2020 elections, and it provides a bill for the Senate to consider if Democrats also win the Senate in 2020. That won't be easy, partly thanks to the now-dead Thomas B. Hoffeller. Now, the name meant nothing to the rest of us, but it has meant everything to the Republican Party. Thomas B. Hoffeller, who died last summer, was called by the New York Times the Michelangelo of gerrymandering. Hoffeller could draw congressional voting districts with surgical precision, giving Republican candidates every conceivable advantage. Well, as it turns out, the now-dead Hoffeller was also behind the Trump administration's ongoing plan 
to add a citizenship question to the United States Census, a question that will keep most immigrants from filling out the census form for fear of being deported. And they would go unrepresented in Congress with no money budgeted for them. Offeller first wrote about the census question in 2015 and about how it would help Republicans gerrymander even more precisely. It was his idea to sell the citizenship question with the argument it's to enforce the Voting Rights Act, and that's the explanation the Trump administration is still giving today. It came from Thomas B. Hoffeller. What these facts reveal is that the Trump administration's real reason for the citizenship question on the census is to help Republicans win more elections. We've learned all of this from Hoffeller's computer hard drives found after his death by his daughter. Those hard drives are now documents introduced into court by the forces trying to block this citizenship question. The United States Supreme Court will take up the citizenship question in just a couple of weeks. The House Oversight Committee, meanwhile, has voted to find Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in contempt of Congress for not providing documents the committee had subpoenaed about the census question. That subpoena has the support of both parties on that committee. And just as Democrat and Republican lawmakers in both houses oppose Trump's border emergency and all that's come with it, they're joining forces to try to block Trump's weapons deals with Saudi Arabia, again abusing his emergency powers. One of the president's closest allies is working with the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to block those 22 arms deals Trump's made with 22 resolutions of disapproval. No other president's gotten that many disapproval resolutions before, and certainly not all at once, but then Trump is no other president. The close Trump ally working with Democrat Bob Menendez? Lindsey Graham. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, meanwhile, points out government data that shows the Trump administration gave U.S. energy companies permission to share nuclear technology with the Saudis just 16 days after the Saudis murdered U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Yesterday afternoon, the Trump administration escalated its trade war with China by selling $2 million in weapons to Taiwan, over and again abusing his emergency powers, an impeachable offense. And in a major morale booster for anti-abortion, anti-choice forces, our current president also yesterday cut off money for the National Institutes of Health to use fetal tissue for research into cures for diseases. He also canceled a contract with a California company hired by the government to do fetal tissue research for a cure for HIV. With more on that story and his own thoughts, Salon.com's Bob Seska. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. The Supreme Court recently upheld part of an Indiana anti-choice law requiring clinics that provide abortion services to dispose of aborted embryos by cremation or by burying the remains. Doctors can also hand over the destroyed embryos to their abortion patients to dispose of as they choose, but the general idea is that a partially gestated human should be buried rather than tossed into a biohazard bin. This is a major priority for Mike Pence, who signed the law back in 2016, just before being sworn in as Donald Trump's vice president. What Pence and his new boss don't realize is they're ordering the burial or cremation of cells 
that could help cure Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, not to mention HIV, rabies, rubella, ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease, spinal cord injuries, burns, heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, and a variety of as of now incurable disorders. Likewise, we learn on Wednesday the possible Alzheimer's sufferer Trump has decided to kill the federal funding for embryonic stem cell research by the National Institutes of Health and other government-operated research agencies. Fred Trump, by the way, the president's dad, suffered from Alzheimer's for six long years before his death. Yes, welcome back to the George W. Bush administration and the abrupt end to government research into cures for literally dozens and dozens of diseases, cures that will take much longer to discover using adult stem cells. There's literally no justification whatsoever for this decision other than as a flagrant and deadly pander to ignorant hoopleheads and religious zealots who don't understand what's at stake. Chiefly, they don't appear to grasp the concept that aborted embryos in every state, including Indiana, are being buried, burned, or tossed into dumpsters, generally wasted rather than recycled for life-saving research. Not for nothing, but the embryos held in storage by the NIH will likely be tossed out too, since experimentation is off the table. In other words, Trump is making sure countless embryos will become garbage instead of a cure for something. It's impossible to fully comprehend why Trump would rather the NIA can these embryonic remains than to use them for the greater good. And forgive me for being so blunt, but the research embryos are dead already. Cutting off the NIH's funding isn't bringing the embryos back to life, and Trump's defunding of these studies definitely isn't going to curtail the abortion rate and therefore the availability of additional tissue samples every day. One explanation could be that Trump is pandering to the idiots who believe the James O'Keefe-inspired fake video in which Planned Parenthood was accused of putting embryonic remains up for bids on a sort of abortion black market. Yes, Planned Parenthood provides remains to research clinics, public and private. Yes, they accept payment for those remains, but the payments are exclusively to cover the cost of shipping the embryos, not as some sort of profit-making scheme. The videos turned out to be selectively edited to show something that isn't actually happening. But that didn't stop the Republicans from exploiting a proven fake video to defund Planned Parenthood. Hell, they completely destroyed Acorn, too, because of another fake video. This time a fake video that was proven fake in court and by countless independent fact-checking organizations. By the way, you might not have heard the rest of the story on those Planned Parenthood videos. The perpetrator of the videos, a guy named David Daleiden from the bogus Center for Medical Progress, was indicted as part of not a liberal investigation, but a GOP-led investigation launched by anti-choice extremist Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Daleiden was also indicted for attempting to illegally purchase fetal body parts, the very thing he was plotting to expose in the first place. The Republican Party permanently grappled its reputation to those obvious fabrications, in spite of the fact that the videos were almost immediately debunked as frauds by nonpartisan fact-checkers. Following suit, more than a dozen state-level investigations, mainly by red state Republican governors, completely exonerated Planned Parenthood from any wrongdoing, including the false allegations in the videos. Yep, one of the two major political parties in this country has built its shoddy, unconstitutional, anti-woman platform on a superstructure of known lies. And now it looks like Trump has made his stupid, stupid NIH decision based on the same nonsense and chicanery. The lack of science and lack of rationality here certainly reflects Trump's penchant for cruel whimsy, 
while also acting to cover his own ass in the face of a crucial re-election battle where the stakes include whether he'll be prosecuted upon losing the White House. Who knows how many Americans will die from the aforementioned diseases? Who knows how many people will suffer horrible, soul-crushing illnesses because Trump and his base are insufferably clueless about this decision? A decision that, again, will not save any embryos from being aborted. Frankly, all things being normal, Trump needs to issue an explanation to men and women suffering from illnesses that could be eliminated permanently by the NIH's embryonic stem cell research. But he never, ever will. By the way, he also thinks he's going to live forever. He won't. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with Bob again on Tuesday. Coming up, the baby Trump balloon, flying reptiles, and Florida returns to the home office in the final segment after this. I would love it if you'd use the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com to get your own personal copy of the Mueller Report and all the other, or get one for a friend, and all the other great books written about our times. And please do all of your shopping there year-round at home, school, or work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click the Amazon logo. You'll land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old bookmark. And once you've done that, I got a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really does help power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you choose not to use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button that's nearby. Thanks for all of those things and for spreading the word about this effort. Not long after the tarp had been removed from the USS John McCain covered during Trump's trip to Japan so as not to upset him, the image of a giant red ball cap bearing the name of that ship was splashed onto a landmark building in London with a powerful laser projector. The image was bright and bold and crystal clear. The round-topped cap was a perfect fit for the dome over Madame Tussauds' famous wax museum in London as a protest against Trump's visit. The ball cap was projected there by a group of liberal British activists called Led by Donkeys. They also gave Trump a heads up on Twitter that his approval numbers in the UK compared to Obama's would be projected onto one of the British capital's most important landmarks, the Tower of London. The score was 72% approval for Obama, 21 for Trump. That image, too, was crystal clear, as was the tweet to Trump, which read in part, In Britain, people really don't like you. They later projected a video of a man endorsed by Donald Trump, Brexit leader Boris Johnson, calling Trump an idiot. This time, also with crystal clear audio. And Led by Donkeys was not the only group staging protests. There were, of course, multiple appearances of the diaper baby Trump balloon, more than 75,000 Brits poured into the streets for anti-Trump protests, complete with signs and chants. Trump didn't see much protesting, he says. Quoting, I heard there were protests. I said, where are the protests? I don't see any protests. I did see a small protest today, very small. So a lot of it, he concluded, is fake news. He's apparently able to shrink crowd size estimates as well as inflate them. 
He did not see much protesting, he says. So perhaps he did not see the polar bear outline mowed into a lawn in Hatfield Heath, England, which is on the approach path to Stansted Airport that Trump's plane descended upon. The high school student who carved that polar bear into his family's sprawling lawn is worried about climate change and how Trump is making it worse. But to make his message more clear to the president, Ollie Nancaro also carved the image of a penis urinating on the name Trump in all caps. Maybe the president saw it on his way in. Or maybe he didn't. Prince Charles gave Trump an earful, however, about that climate change in the 90 minutes they had together. 90 minutes. Trump seemed to listen carefully and spoke kindly of the prince afterward, but he came away unmoved again. Trump says he told the prince the climate in the U.S. is clean. No scientists, no, not even his daughter Ivanka or his former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, could get Trump to agree that climate change is not the Chinese hoax Trump claimed it is in the 2016 campaign and that he should keep the U.S. in the Paris Climate Agreement. Trump ignored his daughter and his Secretary of State and the scientists and the prince. And then on Good Morning Britain, Trump said, I believe there's a change in weather, and I think it changes both ways. And he then tried to discredit it by claiming what was once called global warming was then called climate change and is now called extreme weather. That's not only an inaccurate telling of events, all three of those terms mean the same thing. The globe is warming, which is changing the climate and causing extreme weather. In the 2020 Democratic race, meanwhile, both Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden are out with plans to combat climate change with moves even more aggressive than what we saw in the Obama administration. And they are not alone. Also out with proposals are Beto O'Rourke and Governor Jay Ensley, whose campaign is focused almost entirely on climate change. Many of the other leading candidates are, meanwhile, blocking the Green New Deal. A silencer or sound suppressor, as they're now known, makes it possible to kill people without other people hearing the gunshots. A mass killer, like the now dead one in Virginia Beach, could use a silencer to get from room to room and floor to floor without alerting other people that they too will soon be dead. And whether in a building or in an open setting, a silencer prevents police from pinpointing the shooter's location, which also allows him to kill more people before being killed or captured himself. The other thing about silencers is there's nothing in the Constitution protecting our right to own them. Also not in the Second Amendment is any protection for the high-capacity magazines the Virginia Beach gun owner used to kill 11 City Hall workers and a guy who was just trying to get a building permit. The number of shootings and the number of people killed are staggering, and it's a national health crisis. In January, Republican lawmakers in Virginia killed a move to ban the sale of large-capacity magazines. Republicans said no. Not six months later, the Virginia Beach killer uses them to take the lives of 11 people. Democrats have made it clear that once they're in power, gun violence will be our national emergency. House Democrats in Washington have already passed a bill requiring universal background checks, an idea supported by 90% of Americans, a group that includes gun owners and NRA members. In Virginia, the Democratic governor has called lawmakers back from their summer break to reconsider and pass new gun control laws. 
The Republican lawmaker representing Virginia Beach argued it was too soon. New research was unveiled at a meeting in Chicago this week that attracted nearly 40,000 cancer specialists. They had done their own study of Medicaid expansion and the Affordable Care Act that's been ravaged by Trump and his once lockstep Republican Congress. The oncologist study found that the ACA had accomplished two important goals, earlier diagnosis of cancer and a reduction in racial disparity in these diagnoses and treatments. The study focused on ovarian cancer patients, but early diagnosis and treatment is crucial in the treatment of all cancers. And under the ACA, all patients were suddenly getting that early diagnosis and treatment. Quest Diagnostics and LabCorp, separate companies that run blood tests for millions of patients, say that the personal information of nearly 19 million people has been accessed by an unauthorized user. The hacker reportedly got into that data through a company hired by LabCorp and Quest to do their billing. No blood tests were exposed by the hack, but Social Security numbers were. This story may say a lot about Big Pharma, the big drug companies. We learned yesterday that drug giant Pfizer itself learned four years ago that its popular arthritis pill Enbrel also reduced the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 64%. Pfizer decided to keep this quiet since running a clinical trial would cost $80 million. Pfizer turned a $54 billion profit last year. Pfizer is also getting an $11 billion tax break under the Trump-publican tax laws. This story is also from the Washington Post, which got its hands on internal Pfizer documents and then dug deeper. And now the word is out that Enbrel can prevent or delay Alzheimer's. The Food and Drug Administration has always thought of them as two separate things, food and drugs. But along came the CBD industry, putting a drug into snacks and soft drinks. Suddenly, food and drug were the same thing. They are as one. The FDA is trying to wrap its bureaucratic head around all this and has launched a multi-layered study of CBD, including its long-term effects, whether it interacts with other drugs and what effect it might have on children if they ingest some accidentally or intentionally. The FDA will also look at what happens to a child in the womb when the mother partakes. Is there such a thing as too much CBD? Should there be dosages? And what should those dosages be for each of the conditions that CBD purportedly treats? And what does or doesn't it really treat anyway? Quoting a New York psychiatry professor, it's a Wild West kind of environment right now. The FDA is now wandering into the new frontier. Speaking of pioneers, Illinois this week became the first state to legalize not just having marijuana and using it recreationally, but also to legalize selling it. Ten other states have legalized recreational weed and Vermont legalized possession, but no state's gone so far as to legalize selling the stuff until now, until Illinois. The bill passed under the umbrella of justice reform because it also clears the criminal records of those convicted for what will soon be legal in the land of Lincoln. The bill also taxes these marijuana sales and gives preference to the applications filed by vendors in high-poverty neighborhoods. Oakland, California has just become the second city in the U.S. to decriminalize magic mushrooms, 
a hallucinogenic fungus that's proven successful in treating PTSD and other mental illnesses. Mushrooms had already been decriminalized in Denver. Lawmakers in Oregon will soon vote on a decriminalization bill, and one has been proposed in Iowa as well. Beverly Hills, meanwhile, has become the first city to completely ban the sale of all tobacco except in cigar lounges and hotels. Beverly Hills says it will be monitoring what the law does to its tourism business. If you can even imagine having all of your fingertips cut off from the first knuckle up, that is how millions of domestic cats have been declawed, their owners willing to overlook the cat's torture and maiming in favor of protecting their home furnishings. Cats don't scratch things because they want to destroy them. They do it because it's in their DNA for removing the dead outer layers of their claws to mark their territory because they like it at your place and to stretch from tail to toes. Some cats learn to adapt without their claws, but many cats develop behavior problems or stop using their litter boxes because it's painful and they get packed off to animal shelters or die from complications. So New York State is now poised to join a number of cities in banning declawing, cities including Denver and L.A. Declawing bans are also being considered in New Jersey, Massachusetts, and California. New York lawmakers are also considering bills to increase the fines for people who leave their dogs outside without adequate shelter, to require pet stores to have fire protection systems, and to give tax breaks to people who adopt a shelter animal. Which came first, the bird or the feather? The answer, according to brand new data, is the feather. Using molecular biology, paleontologists have found that feathers were around years before birds at least 100 million years before birds, maybe 200 million. Mind blown yet? And these scientists say they've reconstructed a pterosaur, the flying reptile that served as an evolutionary link between dinosaurs and birds who gave up the size but kept the feathers. Uh, let me just repeat, flying reptiles. The pterosaurs, we now know, had feathers. They got them, estimate the scientists, at about the same time mammals were growing hair. You can now take to the water cooler this question. When it comes to feathers on dinosaurs or birds, who wore it better? Giants in the world of tech and social media, Google, Facebook, and perhaps Apple and Amazon, are in for some good old-fashioned scrutiny. They have thrived in the Internet's wild, wild west. The week began with an announcement from the Justice Department making a case for an antitrust investigation of Google. That investigation could reach deep into Google's business practices. European regulators have in recent years hit Google with billions of dollars in fines for their anti-competitive practices. Democrats in the House, meanwhile, are also looking at whether Facebook, Google, and other such companies have become so large that no competitor dare take them on, which the lawmakers believe can only hurt consumers. They, too, hope to look into Apple and Amazon. Presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren has for some time now been calling for the breakup of big tech. After the 2016 election, Democrats have even more reason to look into these social media giants. It was around the time of the death of Napster that Apple introduced iTunes. It may have saved the music industry, and it gave people a new, easy way to get music, one song at a time, if they liked. 
The success of competitors, especially Spotify, has changed the digital music landscape once again. After 18 years now, iTunes is going away to be replaced by three apps, one for music, one for podcasts, and one for TV. Stay tuned. This week's movie for grown-ups is the edgy Elton John biopic Rocket Man, four stars from me. But Rocket Man came in third behind Godzilla and Aladdin, each earning 49 and 42 million respectively. So there's that. For previews, showtimes, and tickets, kindly click the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Art lovers update. Federal prosecutors in the U.S. plan to drag into court again the man who admitted he broke the thumb off a $4.5 million Chinese statue at a museum in Philadelphia. It happened, as you may recall, at an ugly sweater party at the museum. The man admits he got liquored up, wandered into an unauthorized area, inexplicably did millions of dollars in damage, and made the Chinese government extremely unhappy. In the first trial, the jury deadlocked after the man's lawyer successfully argued that the defendant had been charged under the wrong law. This time the feds are using that other law. What a long, strange trip it was. A San Francisco TV station engineer got his hands on an old synthesizer, one of the earliest models used to produce psychedelic sounds starting in the mid-1960s. Getting his hands on the modular analog synthesizer was how Elliot Curtis's trip began. The synthesizer, as it turns out, had been dipped in or sprayed with LSD. Musicians in those days would wet their fingers touch the LSD-coated synthesizer, lick their fingers, and then make the sounds that illustrated their experience. Once Gary, the modern TV engineer, got his hands on it, he got it in him, through his eyes, nose, or mouth, presumably. His wife witnessed the entire nine-hour trip, calling it super wild. Back in the day, the phrase would have been far out. Just because someone takes the cake doesn't necessarily mean they got a cake. In Texas, a family had ordered a graduation cake at Walmart, but when they went to pick it up, it wasn't ready. The manager offered them one of the display cakes instead. Apparently, the manager didn't know that those display cakes are not real. When the family cut into the cake at the graduation party, that's when they learned that the cake was actually a block of styrofoam with buttercream frosting. Walmart tried to make it up by giving the family a free cake and a $60 store credit. Our highway spill of the week, a load of fresh fish out the back of a truck in Scotland because the back door wasn't quite shut. That truck left a trail of fish all the way into Peterhead, which in other news is the name of a town in Scotland. Seattle's Dan Smith was steamed. Someone without permission had left a car share car in one of the few parking spaces outside his duplex. The Mercedes had been parked there since the middle of May, and it hadn't been used by any of the people who live in the duplex. Dan was steamed, so he built a fence around the car. He had given Chernow's car-to-go company two hours' notice that if they didn't come get the car, he was barricading it in and that he would charge the company 65 bucks a day for storage, retroactively, plus $300 for the fence and another 500 for what he called harassment fees. Chernow says this might be extortion, and it's contacted the police and threatened legal action against Dan. 
Dan was steamed, but he says he'll defer to the cops because he says he doesn't really want any trouble. Sometimes we all just need a good pat on the back. On the campus of Black Rock College in Ireland, 824 area students formed a human chain to give each other pats on the back. They did it for a charity that provides dogs for the disabled. And in so doing, they easily broke last year's Guinness record in which 329 grammar school students also gave themselves pats on the back. Stop me if you hear a theme emerging. U.S. Air Force pilots during standard training maneuvers near Phoenix used their fighter jets' contrails to draw male genitalia in the sky. A spokesman for the 56th Fighter Wings Air Base says it's seen the photos that have been taken by so many people and determined it's all really just a big misunderstanding. The base spokesman says the circles and loops were formed in a simulated dogfight. And... UFOs are just weather balloons. In Pinellas Park, Florida, a man has been arrested for domestic battery after dousing his live-in girlfriend of 11 years in ketchup while she was sleeping. That's what you get, he screamed at her, adding a derogatory term for a woman for emphasis. We don't know why she was getting it, and perhaps it's best we don't. It has been a stormy 11 years for this couple. The police have been to their place before to arrest one or the other of them. At first, the man denied he had assaulted his longtime lover with a condiment, but he could not deny the trail of fresh ketchup down the right leg of his pants. And finally, for years, thanks to its open record laws and a variety of people, Florida has faithfully served as the home office for these kicker stories that regularly appear at the end of my reports. It's been a while since Florida made the finally page. It's back. In Okaloosa Island, Florida, two bank burglars had what they believed was a brainstorm. Break into one of those ATMs using a blowtorch and a crowbar. Thank you, Florida. By the time the police arrived, they were still torching and prying, but in the course of their genius plan... They had not only failed to open the cash machine, they had actually welded it shut. <laughs> I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for shopping my sponsors and using the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.